Bonjour, bonsoir, dear friends, and welcome to JCB Live. Tonight, with JCB number eight, we're going to welcome a very charismatic, charming, irresistible, the accents is from James Bond. He's a master of wine, one of the first, and one of the most awarded English writer, freelancer, and of course, broadcaster and commentator in the world of wine. He's going to make you think of one of those suave English actors. He's certainly between Monty Python, Peter Sellers, and of course, James Bond. Tim Atkin is the man we're going to spend time with. He's been a phenomenal wine writer for The Observer, The Times, and The Guardians, and then decided over the last few years to create his own interpretation of wine by timatkin.com. An amazing Instagram, an incredible commentator. He's a linguist. He graduated from the famous London School of Economics. So there's a lot of brain up there. And ladies, he's still available. Please welcome our very good friends, Tim Atkin. Cheers, my friend. How lovely to see you. I mean, after that introduction, I might as well go home, I think, or stay home. I'm still at well, home luckily, you are home in this beautiful home office you have. Is it where you are right now? I, I'm, I'm actually in my kind of um, kitchen diner, really, and you can see lots of nice photos behind me on the wall. I, I love photography. I take photos and I, I collect photos, so that's, that's kind of my wall of fame. You'll be on well, there. This is who would be on your wall of fame? Because well, if, if you look up over my left shoulder, you can see Mick Jagger, Samuel Beckett are up there. Uh, few, you know, they're all photos by 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 fairly well-known photographers. Not me, sadly. But bit of fun. Well, to me, you are on my wall of fame, Tim. So I'm having a little burgundy because I love burgundy wines. But first and foremost, Tim, how did you get into being interested in wine from your history and your background. How did that happen? It was a complete fluke. I mean, I, I studied French with Spanish university and my year abroad was in Avignon in the south of France. And I resolutely failed to get interested in wine other than drinking it a bit. Um, I left university thinking, mm, what do I do? Uh, I wondered about going to the film industry, failed. Um, applied for a job with, a, with a, a magazine company and there was a job going on a wine magazine. And they said, do you know anything about wine? And I said, no. And they said, they said we noticed you speak French and you speak Spanish and a bit of German. And I said, yes. And they said, we'd like to interview you. So the next day I was going for an interview and I read a book called Serena Sutcliffe's Wine Drinker's Handbook. So I sat up all night and read this book, trying to remember the difference between Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc. And I messed it all up in my head. And I went along to this interview in one of my dad's jackets because I thought made me look grown up. And this magazine company had a bunch of different magazines. One of them was a, was a magazine about vans and another one was about dentistry. And I could have got a job on a dental magazine or a van magazine, instead of which I got a job on a wine magazine. So it was, it was fluke, yeah. That's amazing. So then you got the job. And why do you think you got the job? I, I think they couldn't find anybody else. <laughs> no, I tell you what. Listen, my, my, my father's a journalist, and when I was at university, I'd, I'd run a magazine with two friends, both who got jobs in journalism. And in those days, it was actually quite easy to get a job in, a, in, in journalism because you just start at the bottom, 
there were lots of magazines and I started on a trade magazine called Wine and Spirit and I learned there. And now a lot of those magazines have disappeared. So it's very difficult for people to get in to journalism at the bottom end and earn a bit of a salary. So that was, that was fortunate for me that I just managed to get a job. Because if there's another magazine I could see you write for, it would have been maybe Penthouse or <laughs> maybe Playboy well, magazine. It's always been ambition to appear in the centerfold, along with you, actually. I got the two of us together. What do you think? In, <laughs> so that, in, in the cave, in the road pages To get all the way to the belt. Yeah, <laughs> those are the days. Maybe, maybe 30 years ago, we might have made it, but no. Penthouse. Well, I mean, Play Playboy's published some great writers over the years. I mean, I don't know if it still does. It's a while since I've bought it, but it's probably online now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is. So if if it would have been wine, what would you like to achieve over the last 20 years as an example? Well, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I said to you I didn't, I didn't get into the film industry, but it's not true in that I, I, I tried to get a job in the film industry and I thought I was going nowhere. And then somebody offered me a job when I'd already accepted uh, this job working on a magazine to go and work as a runner on a film called The Mission, which was filmed, I, I think, somewhere in Central America with Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. So who knows, I might have died of malaria or some terrible disease, or I might now be a film director, or I might be nobody. So, so who knows? I mean, I, I'm like you. I think you just, you know, life chooses your your opportunities sometimes and you just have to take them. So I, I took the opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy doing what I do, like you. I love wine. I love travel, I love languages, I love the people involved in wine. Uh, and now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I was lucky. And do you think it was, besides luck, your destiny? Do you believe in that? No, I don't really. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I don't like the idea of destiny because then it means that you don't really have a choice in what you do. Um, I think it's an ideal fit for me and maybe there's something, who knows, yeah, in the stars or whatever that, that, it, that means that, that, that there's an influence on you, maybe. I, I don't know. There's something spooky about it sometimes, isn't there? But I don't know. It was just luck, I think. And, and I, I, it's been my ambition, I think, as a, as a student was to go on being a student for the rest of my life. A bit like you, you know, anyway, you, you've gone on doing something that's fun. And I just wanted to go on being a student, I studying, writing, drinking, having good fun um, and not having to go into an office every morning at half past eight in the morning and leave at half past six, seven o'clock at night. Uh, and just feel that I've done the same thing every day. And I think the life that's chosen me or I've chosen means that most of the time every day is different. At the moment with lockdown, all the days are very similar. <laughs> but I think that in the old days, pre-pandemic, uh, it was just lovely to be able to travel and, and spend time with friends like you and, and just be in great places really. Well, we get to do this, which is fun too. Yeah. So on your wall, you have Mick Jagger, a graduate of London School of Economics. And you, you must be probably in the world of wine as, as a wonderful writer, the only one coming from the London School of Economics, aren't you? I, I think, uh, I can't think of anybody else. There probably is somebody. I'll tell you a good story about Mick Jagger. A few years ago, I, I sang in a, in a wine trade band for charity and I was the first up. And uh, so the musicians were all very good. And the singers were all wine writers and various people. And they said to me, okay, you're first up, what would you like to do? And I thought, never sing a song by somebody with a great voice. So don't do Marvin Gaye, do Bob Dylan, right? Or Mick Jagger, who've got okay voices. And so I, I did Start Me Up. Anyway, the night before we were about to do this concert, I was sitting in a restaurant in London, just off the King's Road with the guitarist from the band. 
and we were sitting there and I promise this is true. It was one of those things with booths, the back-to-back booths. Anyway, Mick Jagger walked in and sat oh. in the And he was with a with a, a younger lady. And I thought, should I lean over and just say, excuse me, Mr. Jagger, can I have a photograph with you? Because we're about to do this <laughs> gig tomorrow night. And I thought, no, don't, because he just said, you're interrupting me anyway. But I just thought there was a there was just a nice touch really of, of, of you know, happenstance, of, of serendipity that on the night before we did the concert and I went live doing Start Me Up in front of all these people, Mick Jagger sat beside me. I <laughs> didn't know it, but I did. <laughs> the stars were aligned. The again. stars were aligned. Mick was there. It was amazing. <laughs> hey, so Tim, um, you did the fantastic Masters of Wine and tell us about this experience and why you did it and what does it mean to you today to be part of this amazing, you know, incredible group of people who've achieved the, the highest degrees in wine you could possibly do? It's, do you know why I did it? And this is going to sound a bit sad to many of the people watching this is I actually quite enjoy exams. Um, I like the challenge of doing an exam. I like setting myself a test as it were and doing it. And I did it for that reason, really. But one reason was, was it was like Everest. It was there, therefore I wanted to climb it. The other reason was I thought it might be useful really in the world of wine that maybe it gives you a little bit of extra kudos and to be honest it's been spectacularly bad at doing that in most places nobody has paid any notice whatsoever to it except that once years ago just after I passed in 2001 I wanted to go to Harlan Estate and I phoned up Harlan Estate and said hello I'm Tim Atkin uh, I'd like to come to Harlan Estate for a visit and they said we've never heard of you and I said oh that's a shame um, and they said, can you tell us a bit more about you? And I said, I'm a, I'm a master of wine. And they said, please come tomorrow. And I think if I just said, I know, if I'd said I climbed Everest or I'd landed on the moon, they'd have said, no way. Those magic letters. And that's, I think, I would say that's the only time it's been, it's been useful to me. But having said that, it's the sense yeah. of achievement, you know. Oh, very big one. So, um, and you you got graduated in early 2000, right? Well, I, I did two degrees. My first, my, oh, you mean in Master One? Yes, I did. I passed in 2001. So one yes. of the first ones. How, how, by the way, do you explain that this degree is created in England yeah. for the world and not in France or not in Italy yeah. or not in Spain. It's pretty well, amazing, I mean, don't you think? To, to correct you, I was not one of the first ones. It started in the 50s and originally it was, it was a trade qualification just for people in England and no, no journalists really. I and mean, one of the first journalists to pass was, was Jancis Robinson, a fantastic communicator. Um, and that was partly my inspiration. I thought, well, Jancis has done it. You know, Jancis is very, very bright and, and very good at what she does. It partly inspired me to do it. Um, it sort of opened up to the world, really, in the end of the 90s, around the time I was doing it, probably the, probably the mid, early 90s on, people started doing it from Australia and the States. I think so far there are a couple, two or three French people. Now we've got MWs all over the world. And it's fantastic to see MWs coming through from, you know, from China and Japan and Argentina and, you know, all these different countries. So it makes it a, a global um, organization really. I was going to say brotherhood but it's a sisterhood as well it's very important I think that a lot of the people who pass now are, are women way more women pass than men now historically it was a very male dominated thing and I think now it's it's very open and I'm not a woman obviously but I think talking to female friends who've done it say that they feel that it's quite open uh, to women more maybe than other qualifications. How different do you think women taste versus men? 
I, I think women are, are more aware of their environment. And, you know, it's partly to do with, I think, you know, having children or, or at least having those genes. But I think women are used to being aware of danger around, around their offspring. I mean, not so much now, but if you look at our, our, our backgrounds, where we came from, um, you know, millions of years ago, they were aware of danger, whether it was wild animals or, or predators, you know, other type of, you know, people trying to, I don't know, steal from them, whatever. Um, so I think women, women are more aware of their environments. I think anybody can learn to be a good taster, but I think that more women are, 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 are better tasters than men. I think the best male tasters are as good as the best female tasters, but I think there are more good women tasting than there are men. And that's part and of- And how do you explain that men. in terms of the tastings? I think a lot of the time, women are physically born with, with more taste buds. It's this thing that you're, you're, you literally have more taste buds on your tongue. It's what makes a super taster, so-called super taster. And the problem with being a super taster is you experience the, the, the five flavors that we can taste on our tongues and our palates in a more intense way. It's why supermarkets never employ so-called super tasters because their palates are, are unusual. They're, they're not like the majority of the, of the population. You know, I'm not a super taster. I don't think I have that number of taste buds. I'm somebody who's learned to do it by working my butt off. You know, I mean, it, it's, you get better at it. You know, it's like you with the kickboxing. You know, you started off, you were getting your ass kicked and suddenly you fight with those new JCB gloves. But you suddenly, you know, you're in a world where, where you're getting fitter, you're getting better at something. And I think wine tasting is like that. I mean, I think people are very put off by wine tasting. They think, oh, I can't do it. But it's rubbish because we all, we all taste and, 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 and smell stuff all the time. We're aware of our environments. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some very good stuff published on it, on, on the work. There's a great new book by Harold McGee called Nosedive. Have you seen that book? No, Nosedive. It's all about the world of smells. Buy it, folks, if you're watching this. Brilliant book. Uh, I'm not on commission. Uh, it's just a really, it's a thick book, but it just looks at the world of smells. And we smell much more than we taste. We know that, right? I mean, you're a big guy. You're into perfume. Um, you love that. And, you know, I just think, I would say to everybody, just be aware of your environment, you know, that smell the coffee, smell the flowers. It's a big bit of being alive, I think. Yeah, not just in a spiritual way, but, but dive in and learn from it. So well, why don't you give us, we gave you a little deloach from the Russian River because we know how great and amazing you are with Burgundy wine. This is your second home. And I've tasted Pinot from Burgundy with you for the last 20 plus years. Why don't we do the Russian River Deloach Vineyards so you could give us a class right now of yeah. how and what happens in Tim Atkins' head. Walk us through the process of a wine tasting. Okay, well, I, the first thing I would say to you is, is that ignore color, right? I mean, some great varieties have more color than others, um, and that's about all there is to say about it. So I think that color, especially in Pinot Noir, is no guide to quality, although it often has this, this pale colour. Pinot Noir, I think, very often a way of explaining it to people is that it's a red wine for people who like white wines, right? So it's a bridge between the world of white wines and red wines. It doesn't have a massive amount of tannin most of the time. It's very perfumed, it's aromatic. And I once tasted with a guy who was blind, amazing taster uh, in California, literally a blind tasting, that he is blind, has been from, from a very young age. And the things that they pick up in wine, if you blindfold yourself, you often can't tell if the wine is red or white. You think you can, but you can't. So Pinot is very fragrant. And I'm, funnily enough, I'm, I'm tasting this alongside 
a burgundy that I opened last night, which is a Chambord Misigny uh, from Huguenot Noëlla. And very nice. Year, as well. Even 20, 20 years ago, the gulf between New World Pinot Noir, especially California Pinot Noir, and Burgundy was massive and it's narrowed. And if you were to compare these two wines now, as I've been doing, they're actually not so far apart. And I think that California Pinot, Oregon Pinot, New Zealand Pinot, South African Pinot, German Pinot, all these things are catching up, partly because of people like you. So I find this very fragrant, very subtle. It doesn't overpower you with alcohol at all. And I think California Pinot in the past sometimes used to do that. Um, it's very gentle. I think the oak is beautifully done. I'm looking for, for spices. I'm, I'm looking for kind of, I mean, I hesitate to say sex. I think I'm more, I'm looking in terms of just something sensuous. You know, you want yes. something that, that, that tickles your palate, that, that smooths your palate, that just gives you a slight, I don't know, almost like a caress. And I think that's what Pinot does. Cabernet is one of your boxing gloves. I think Pinot is just a little bit of a, a smooth caress on the cheek. It's very, it's, it's lovely. And I hesitate to use the words, feminine and masculine, because I don't think they mean anything in terms of wine. I just think it's a, it's a very gentle, um, caressing, involving wine. And it's a while since I've tasted Deloach, since you guys got hold of it and started working your magic there. I think this is really good. You know, Russian oh, River is a smart you. area. And I think this is absolutely lovely. Well, what a description. And it's a very wise description. And on that note, you're part of a few groups named the Wise Men. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're the Wine Men. So it's three wine men. So it's 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 a common why, not wise. We never claim to be wise. We're really not wise at all. It, it's three of us. I mean, you know, it's it's very politically incorrect these days to call yourself three wine men. We are three wine men, but there are lots of women who also are part of our group. And um, you know, they're they're like Susie Atkins, no relation to me. Um, but it's basically Oz Clark, who many watching will know. Oz Clark, a very famous English wine writer, one of my best friends. And Ollie Smith, another great friend. Ollie, uh, you may not know quite so well. He's, he's uh, better, much better known in the UK, a bit of a TV personality. And I think our personalities are complementary. And we started doing it to have fun. You know, a big thing about what you do in life is if it's not fun, don't do it. Do something else, right? If you don't have to do it and it's not fun, don't do it unless it's paying you so much money. No, even then, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Have fun. So um, you created as well your incredible, very dynamic TimAtkin.com, your Instagram, your Facebook, and all of that. Tell us about the new world you live in because you've been writing for the top three English newspapers. Yeah. I mentioned it, you know, The Observer, The Times, yeah. The Guardians. I mean, those are mammoth, phenomenal influencer. So give us the evolution of journalism and how has it been to create your own after working for those great newspapers? I mean, the world of journalism has changed dramatically and it was, it's the web, you know, really the, the internet that changed it. That, you know, advertising disappeared from newspapers. Readers stopped reading newspapers, certainly in physical form. And therefore newspapers, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, started cutting down on their wine columns. And I'd done a column on The Observer for nearly 20 years, and it was reduced to that much. Yeah. Um, and I, I took the decision to leave, that, that, that I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I thought I'd do my own thing. And I was lucky that I launched my website and put effort into it and money into it and started doing reports on given countries or regions like Burgundy and South America and South Africa and Spain, just at a time when when it took off that I already had a bit of a name 
uh, and therefore I've kind of, I suppose you could say, reinvented myself. I think that nowadays, rather than being a wine writer, you're a wine communicator in the same way that, you know, you're all sorts of things. You're, you, you have many, many personalities or what the same personality, but you have many faces in a way. You know, it's the jewelry, it's the boxing, it's the, it's the perfume, it's the wine, it's the, it's the capes, it's all sorts of stuff. And I think that all of us as communicators now, we're, we're mini entrepreneurs. We have to look at different sectors of the business and say, Instagram, let's do it. I mean, I'd never done a Zoom until March of this year. I'd never done a podcast. I'd never done a, an Instagram Live, but now I'm doing them every week. And I think that we all have to be very adaptable in this new world of, of communication. I mean, who knows what's going to happen next year? I mean, let's hope the pandemic's going to end. But I think that the, the world of communication and the world of wine tasting, what we're doing, um, has changed dramatically. And I don't know if it will ever go back to what it was. Um, and how, where do you see it going from now on? I, I think we'll travel less. I mean, you know, I used to travel a lot. I was probably traveling, um, you probably, probably more than you even, you know, probably five months a year. Yeah. That's a lot of flights. You know, that's a, that's, that's a lot of uh, carbon footprint, basically, that you're accumulating. And I think that maybe I don't need to travel as much as I thought I did, that I can do these sorts of tastings where you could send me samples like you have here and I'm tasting the Deloach Pinot with you, you know, it's like I'm sitting next to you, you know, it's not quite as much fun because I'd be appreciating your wonderful jacket and dress sense, uh, the brooch you're wearing, which I particularly like. Well, not as good as your beautiful shirt. Can Would you, you like to hear about it? It is actually a pill shirt. Can you see it? I it's can see pills. it. It's, it, it looks very British inspired design. Is it true? It, it is. It's a, it's a company called Gresham Blake who do very nice shirts. I like their, they're always a bit of fun. Uh, he's got a sense of humor and you and I, you know, I think I love, I, I love, I love fashion. I love dressing up in silly shirts and, you know, people sort of say, oh, you know, you go to a burgundy tasting in London and I turn up in a very loud shirt and a pair of, you know, check trousers and people say, oh God, I mean, that's a bit serious, isn't it? And they're all these people in pinstripe suits looking very serious. And I think those people are there to be shocked and teased. They think in a way. And, and what, on that note, is Monty Python one of your favorite movies of all time, or what yeah, is it? I love Monty Python. I, I was lucky enough once to, to once to meet uh, Michael Palin um, at university, and another time to interview him about wine. Uh, and he was my favorite Python. I mean, he still is. He's still alive. I'm pleased to say. And I've, I've only met him those two times. I always loved him, and I I, I love the the insanity of Python. You know, I, I think that it's best. It was, it was the best of British humour because it was surreal. You know, I, I think it's, some of these things that were just crazy. <laughs> There's the yeah. famous thing called the fish dance where this guy is dancing on the side of a dock and they keep patting each other on the side of the face with the fish. And this guy gets this massive fish out and whacks somebody in the face and knocks them into the dock. Why is that funny? I, I don't know why it's funny, but it is funny. You know, if you yeah. watch it, it's very funny. So, so yeah, I, I, love, I, I love British humour. I love... Um, not not just not just not just Python. I think Python are very good, but uh, Peter Sellers, you mentioned earlier, Peter Sellers is is brilliant. I I love him, Jim uh, John Keys as well. Now yeah. you, you are tricultural, really very strong French understanding. You lived in France, you lived in Spain, obviously in the UK. How would you compare English humor to French humor? What, what the, the, do you mean the world of France? Yes. Well, I, I, it's something that we, we share. I mean, I, I, I've lived in Paris, I've lived in France three times in my life on separate occasions. And I love France, I really do. And uh, the, so many things about 
French culture, I think, particularly French food and wine, I love. But I often found that there was a slight sameness to France, that people, ex eccentricity is not tolerated in the same way that it is in England. People are much more stylish than they are in England. But I don't think punk could have happened in France. Do you know what I mean? I, I just don't, I can't yes. imagine the Sex Pistols being a, being a French band. And I think the same thing, you know, generally applies to, to, to French music. I, I think, you know, and, and, and theatre and the creative arts. I think that we're better at that. So I love France, but I, I kind of like living in England. Or, you know, I'm obviously not very pro-Brexit and I, that's going to be a, a, a difficult time for us. The other bit of me that's a big bit of my heart and soul is Spain and South America. And I think I'm, my affections have changed a bit. You know, I've lived in France a lot. I've never lived in Spain, although I spend a lot of time there. I'm almost becoming a bit more Spanish. I'm becoming a bit more Latin, maybe. And, yeah. and the bit of France I like most is the Latin bit. You know, I mean, I think you're, you're not very Burgundian. You should have been born in Marseille or something like that, or, you know, Daphne or something. You know, you're, you've, got a, you've got a Mediterranean soul, right? And I think it's Except the Mediterranean my, my skin and hair color, but that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, you're Bourguignon in some senses, but, you know, I, I think you feel the same way that, you know, you yeah. love Burgundy, I love Burgundy, you know, but, but would you want to live in Burgundy? I, I, I wouldn't personally. I think it's, it's too small. You know, it's too, there's too many people saying, oh, what's he doing? You know, what are you doing? Yeah. And, I, and that's why I like big cities, um, because not because you're anonymous, but you're relatively anonymous. Uh, and I just love the vibrancy and the creativity and, and the energy of those places. And, the energy you get in Burgundy is, is sort of a spiritual energy. It's an energy that comes from the land and the terroir and its history. We, you know, you and I have talked about monks a few times. I won't say why, but anyway, we don't and, and I think you get that from Burgundy. And, and, but you get a different type of energy, I think, in big cities. And I definitely get a different type of energy in, in Latin countries, you know, particularly Argentina uh, and, and, and Spain. Yeah. Yeah, very well said. So... Tim, you've gotten every single awards that there's possible to be gotten. You belong to all the organization of fine wines, from Spain to obviously Burgundy. And I was very honored to be able to be your godfather on this one, to the bon temps in Bordeaux. And you've written for the best newspapers. You freelance with Decanter today. We'd love to get your idea of the evolution of wine journalism where do you see it going and and um, and then i have another question of course well i, I think it's more and more online uh, and i think that when when i started writing about wine in 1985 uh, a long time ago robert parker was just entering a very important phase of his career and he was very famous yeah. and very influential and in those days because people only read newspapers and magazines and there was no online communication, uh, there were very few leading wine writers and they had a massive influence on the world of wine. What's happened since then is it's become much more democratic. And, and I like that, you like that. I like yeah. bloggers, I like people doing, doing Instagram posts. I think the whole thing has opened up and it's become a world of communication rather than of pontificating experts. Doesn't mean that I don't respect expertise, that I've got expertise myself in certain areas of the wine world, not in every one. But I, but I like the fact that everybody can have an opinion, that your opinion is as valid as my opinion, that people can watch this or watch an Instagram live that we all do you know, uh, later and say, these guys look like fun, they're having a good time. They can put a question to you. They can say, where did you get that jacket? 
you know, are, are you sure that brooch was a good idea? Are you going to emerge from the egg sitting behind you? No, I, I just think that people, it, I like the fact that wine, that wine is not something that when I was growing up, it was, it was almost like wine wasn't something for me. You know, I was not from a wealthy family. My parents were middle class. They drank a bit of wine, but they didn't have a wine cellar. They didn't drink fine wine. And in those days, it was like fine wine was something for people with lots of money or who came from very aristocratic families. Now everybody drinks wine. Yeah. And, and I like that, you know, and everybody can communicate about wine, whether it be through, you know, Vivino or apps like that, or they can join in conversations online. There's so much information and I love it. You know, I don't think you want one Robert Parker, you know, in the world or one Michel Bétain in France or one Jancis Robinson in the world. You want lots of them. You want lots of people all joining in the conversation. So it's a, it's a cacophony of noise and, and opinion and, 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 yeah, you know, passion. Absolutely. Now, Tim, you've written so much on the world of wine. What has been your most challenging article you've ever written on wine? My most challenging article was, was to do with a Burgundian, which was Lalubis Le Roi. And Lalubis, for people who are watching, is a very, very famous lady. She's the Grand Dame, uh, ex de Medellin Romney Conti. And she's quite frightening, I think. Anyway, I was supposed to be interviewing her in Bordeaux. And the photographer was going to take a picture of her in a vineyard with Anne-Claude Lefleur side by side, because an article about both of them in the Mahache vineyard, because they both had vines there. Anyway, I got a call from the photographer and said, there's been a disaster. Madame Bise's dog has been bitten by a snake and is dead. So I thought, I've killed her dog. I bet the photographer's killed her dog. So I arrived for this interview in Bordeaux, thinking that her dog was dead and she's very attached to her dog. So I arrived. On day, you know, almost in black, and to say I'm very, very sorry. I said, I'm so sorry about your dog, Madame. I mean, it's terrible that it was bitten by a snake and it's dead. And she said, Oh no, it's fine, it's absolutely fine. And the dog had survived. <laughs> so so I, I that interview was okay, but the beginning of it was that was really quite scary because I thought, as I said, you know, the most famous female winemaker in, in, in Burgundy and her dog was dead because of me. <laughs> now, what's the most controversial article? you've ever written? Oh, I don't know. That's a good, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I try to be controversial all, all the time, as often as I can be. I can't think of a single article that I'm, you know, has been excessively controversial that comes to mind. I can't think of anything, but I always try and have a bit of edge in my articles that, that you know, you want to ask people the question they don't want to be asked in a way, you know, and I think that's the the mark of a reasonably good journalist, and I like to think of myself as a as a trained journalist, is that you you understand people and you have enough intuition to ask them questions that they might find a little bit more difficult, really. Now, I just served the Raymond ah. Velvet label, which could be a controversial label because it's a velvet label, Tim. Can you feel it? And I knew you would you would obviously wear a beautiful shirt, Damien Hurst inspired. <laughs> And I've seen you a lot in velvet too, so I thought maybe you would wear velvet for those holiday seasons, but this is the closest to velvet we do at the image of the Red Room. So you describe Pinot so well. Would you be so generous to describe this one? Yes, I would. I mean, personally, velvet, I only wear, only my underpants are velvet. I don't... Well, I thought you didn't wear any. When you came to Bougeret, 
<laughs> years ago. I don't think you were wearing any underwears that day. Maybe you. No, that was you in that film where you were you were filmed in that tank. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad at least you shave your legs, though. That's a good yeah, exactly. Well, no, I think Cabernet is the is I wouldn't say it's the polar opposite of of, of Pinot, um, but it's 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 less difficult than Pinot. I think Pinot is people always say it's a very difficult grape variety. I don't think that that's can be can be exaggerated. I think, but Cabernet is the number one grape in the world. It grows everywhere. It grows in lots of different climates, so not just cooler climates like Atlantic Bordeaux. But you know, in warmer climates like California, you know, Calistoga, obviously in the Napa Valley, um, anywhere really, it grows everywhere. Um, it's I think often best when it's blended. Now I don't know if you've blended this or whether it's a pure cab. Is it? Knowing you, you naughty man, you will have blended it. Pure cab. Pure cab. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think cab, I often think about cab as being as being quite structured. Um, it, to me, cab is often not a great variety that has curves in it. It's it's quite angular. You know, I, I think it's got lots of acidity, it's got lots of tannin. It ages well. Um, again, it's it's not a punch in the face, but I think it's 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 a little bit more aggressive in a sense. You know, that, that if Pinot is stroking you, um, I think that Cabernet is, is challenging you in a way. I think it's quite a challenging wine to taste. It's got more acidity. It's got more tannin. It's often made to age. It's often aged in a, in a significant percentage of new oak, especially if it's a top wine like this. Um, I, you know, I, I think that it appeals to a very different set of people, really. I think that, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a generalization to say that Pinot appeals to slightly more artistic people. I don't know if that's true. And Cabernet maybe to people who are a little bit more sort of deal driven and a little bit more, I don't know, um, focused on what they're doing. I think Pinot, is maybe for people who you know are happy to kind of ride with the punches. Cabernet's a bit more, you know, I want this. I think it's a, it's a stricter master in a way, whereas I think that Pinot is, as I said, just a, a little bit gentler in its approach. I like this Cabernet a lot. Having said that, I think that it's got it's got wonderful structure, great depth, great colour. I don't find it over alcoholic, and some California Cabernets I find. A, a bit too ripe almost and I think particularly with the weather you're getting now with with climate change you're getting these these warmer seasons um, it's quite difficult to make what used to be called European style wines and I think there are a lot of people in making mountain wines in California uh, and in Sonoma as well or coastal wines that get more of that freshness into their wines and that's the kind of Cabernet I like I mean it's it's wrong to say Bordeaux style because you know, Bordeaux very often these days has 14% alcohol. It's changed a lot. But I think that I like, I like freshness in my wines. And I think Cabernet at its best has that. It's precise. It's quite angular, as I said. It's up and down. I don't think it surprises you very often. I think Pinot, Pinot maybe surprises you and, and moves you in a way. Cabernet doesn't move me in quite the same way. It doesn't, it doesn't make me think, oh, I want to, you know, I want to get up. I want to start dancing. You know, I just want to... <laughs> Yeah, I want to start drinking. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's why. Only if you sit in that egg. <laughs> and that's why we need to go to timatkin.com because you're such a phenomenal describer of wine. And I love reading what you write, but I adore listening to you. So I think your Instagram is one of the best with all those great interviews. Now, Tim, what is your dream now that you've done so much in the world of wine? I. As I read your bio, and everybody will be able to discover it right here into the, the chat, what's next? 
you know, there's, there's, there's a book I really want to write. There's a wine book, which is, a lot of it is historical. Uh, and it's kind of a history book mixed with travel. I can't tell you everything because then someone would steal the idea. But there's a book I want to write, which may or may not sell lots of copies, but it's a book that would involve lots of travel, um, possibly by boat in some cases. Uh, and so I think that, that's still one thing I'd like to do is to write a book that I'm really proud of. I've done lots of work I'm proud of, but not really a wine book where you know, as you're sitting there in your bath chair in your 80s, if we survived that long, you pointed a book on the shelf and said, oh, I wrote that. Um, that would be nice, I think. I mean, I think if you, you know, I envy Hugh Johnson, um, great writer, in that he's yeah, he's written The Story of Wine, you know, which yeah. is an amazing, amazing book, yeah? Um, and I think it would be nice to have something on the shelf that you were proud of. Other well, than that, I'm going to keep doing the same thing. Count me in as your first customer. I'd love oh, to. Oh, you're a legend. Read your first book. And now, Tim... <laughs> What inspires you really? Do you know what inspires me is, is people, yeah? Uh, it, it's also places, and there are yeah. certain places that I feel uh, are magical. I mean, this word spiritual is overused, but I think there are certain places that have, have an energy and an atmosphere, and Burgundy yeah. is certainly one of them around. I think it's, it's monk-related, you know, but it's people that inspire me. You know, one of the great things about my job, and I love it, is I get the chance to hang out with some really fun people. And even when sometimes you don't like people, they're nearly always interesting in the yeah. wine business. And I would say 99% of the time, they're fun people. They're nice people and they're generous people. Wine, wine people like sharing wine. I mean, real wine people, you know, some people say, oh, it's my bottle, I'll keep it. They're not wine people for me. The wine people are people who say, hey, I've just opened this, have a glass, yeah? Or, you know, come and, come and join me at my table. And I love that about the, the idea of the pulley uh, in, in, in Burgundy, these, these big sort of parties really, where everybody wanders around with bottles of wine and the same thing happens, I, I think probably in the Napa Valley, maybe at the auction, certainly up in Oregon at the IPNC, the International Pinot Noir celebration, that it's a celebration of, of wine and, and, and of alcohol. You know, I mean, alcohol, let's face it, it you know, I don't want to be incapacitated from drinking alcohol, but I like what alcohol does to me. You know, I don't mean I'm going to drink three litres a day I and mean, then you've got a problem. But I like drinking in moderation. I like the fact that it's a, you know, it's a drug. Um, that's why I'm wearing the pills tonight. It is a drug, and and but it's a nice drug. You know, used in the right way, it's a great drug. It's my favourite drug. Well, certainly anyone I'm going to admit to on here, anyway. <laughs> God, I'm not your psychoanalyst, but uh, you've admitted there's a little bit of an obsession there. <laughs> I love it. So, Tim. You know, we, we're living, obviously, unusual time. You're a great thinker. You're an amazing personality. I would love for you to leave all of us tonight with a big message. Whatever message you want to share to all of us, it could be wise, it could be psychedelic, it could be, it could be anything you want for all of us to part ways and remember Tim Atkin as this incredible man who suggested this. I would say, and it's something we talked about a few times, never be told by somebody you can't do something because you can. Very well said. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being with us. So much fun as always, and even more fun as we just did in person. So maybe the future is Zoom. I and think so. Let's drink to Zoom this with way. the Deloche. <laughs> Absolutely. All the See you, best. JCB. And thank you so much.